Thank you for being a member of the History of World War II podcast, Episode 110, The Iron Ring. Last time, after Franco and the Italians had failed in the East, the officers of the Condor Legion convinced the Nationalist General to switch his priority to the North, in Basque country. Madrid's relationship with the Northerners wasn't particularly strong, and if the region could be subdued, then the Nationalist forces there could be freed up to help finally take Madrid. But first things first. A naval blockade was established by the Nationalists in the north, but this quickly brought in the British Royal Navy, as British merchantmen were stopped as they tried to deliver supplies to Bilbao. The HMS Hood was sent over to watch over the situation, as regards British shipping. But London was more determined than ever to stay out of the fight, as many that mattered in London were on Franco's side. On April 20th, the same day that the British merchantman Seven Sea Spray pulled into Bilbao, the main nationalist offensive started in the north. Right away, the Condor region and Italian air power made the difference. The Basques were proud men and fierce fighters, but nothing they had or could do would hold up the rain of bombs now coming down on them. What's more, the Carlists' troops, now under Franco's control, now that the Carlist leader was banished to Portugal, was equally fierce fighters, and they easily pushed back the demoralized Republican troops. Unit by unit, the Basques fell back, pulling themselves out of the line. Yet the attackers weren't having it all their way. On April 20th, Hitler's birthday, Italian bombers accidentally dropped bombs on nationalist troops. Richtofen wrote, There you are. But further weakening the Basques' attempt at self-defense was its general staff and commander. Colonel Montaud. He was defeatist from the get-go. Again, the Basques were sure that Franco would win eventually, so the leadership did not have their heart in this contest. So, even though General Mola, the nationalist officer, commander of this attack, was much too conservative, his ineptitude was matched by Montaud's lackluster performance. Three days later, on April 23rd, Richtofen's complaints only increased. As the Condor Legion was working every hour of daylight they could, their enthusiasm was not being matched by the ground troops. The 4th Brigade promised to send 12 battalions to clean up a part of the line that the Germans had just bombed. But instead, only two came, which kept the Basque soldiers in the fight. The next day, Franco's men were about to take another small town, but were just waiting for the Italians to bomb it first to soften up the men. The Italian planes never showed up, yet they reported that the sortie had just been finished. It was the Germans who figured out that the pilots had just bombed the wrong location. The next question for the Condor Legion leadership was, should Bilbao be bombed? It was the largest city of the Basques. Perhaps that would force the locals to sue for peace. But then the Italians stepped in and said if the Catholic Basques were bombed and many innocent civilians died, Pope Pius XI would surely come in and raise a ruckus 
Mussolini did not need the headache. By April 25th, many of the Basque troops stationed at Marquina, just south of Guernica itself, about 10 miles east of Bilbao, pulled out of the line and ran for the relatively quiet city of Guernica. This put those troops about 10 miles behind the front line, so they felt safe from any more shelling or bombing. But on the next day, April 26th, at 4.30 p.m., the bells of the main church began to ring out. This was the signal for a coming air attack. Obviously, someone on lookout had spotted an enemy plane and got the word out. That day in Guernica was its market day. Farmers from all over had brought their cattle and sheep in, but now all the humans ran down into various cellars. As the streets cleared, a lone Heinkel 111 bomber flew over and dropped its payload. The plane then flew away. The bombs detonated. Then all became quiet. The noise level began to increase gradually as the people came out and ran to help the injured. Just then, not 20 minutes later, a full squadron of Heinkels returned, dropping a mixture of different sized bombs. Those who had made it back to the shelters realized they were not any safer than those still on the streets. The heavier bombs were able to penetrate down through the structures before detonating. With this, the people, those still alive and able to, ran out of the city and into the nearby fields. They quickly mingled with the other farmers who had been turned away at the city's edge, as there was no more room for any more animals. Then the Heinkel 51 fighter squadron, which supported the bombers, flew over and dove down on the civilians, who thought they were safe. Most of these were women, children, and nuns who had been helping in a nearby hospital. Now, those who had survived the first two bombing attacks were attempting to help the fallen, but at 5.15 p.m., more planes could be heard approaching. Those soldiers among the survivors knew what made that sound, JU-52s. Sure enough, the first of three squadrons were spotted, having flown in from Burgos, 60 miles to the southwest. The German planes then began bombing a pre-designated part of Guernica in 20-minute relays for the next two and a half hours. This would later be called carpet bombing. In fact, the Condor Legion had just invented it when recently attacking Oviedo. Now the details were worked out, and each bomb run would pick up where the previous one left off to guarantee the maximum amount of damage and casualties. As death and destruction was the goal of this operation, various types of bombs were used. Small, medium, and 250-kilogram bombs, anti-personnel bombs, and incendiaries. This last type was sent down in aluminum tubes. The tubes, when they hit a house with people in the cellar, instantly were set aflame. If the structure was hit by one of the bigger bombs, then those below were crushed as the house or building fell in on them. As for the cattle within the city, those not killed outright were also set aflame. Panicking, they ran around until dead, but not before helping to spread the fire. 
White phosphorus was also used, which, of course, only added to the fire. The idea was to starve out those not actually killed by the strikes. The Basque government would later claim that 1,600 people were killed and another 800 wounded. Later research would show a tally much lower, around 300. The truth is probably somewhere in between. But the point to focus on, as the Germans intended, was that the majority of however many were dead were civilians. This was a terrorist attack on a massive scale. As for those civilians running toward Guernica from Bilbao, talk soon spread among them that the city was being bombed. This was certainly what Richtofen wanted, panic and confusion. The people stopped as the sky above their destination soon turned red. Richtofen would also later comment that the German pilots had been so precise that there was a clear line that separated the area within their operation. All within had been destroyed, and the intact buildings just beyond it. Franco, as he had done before, blamed the bombing on the communists, saying this proved why he had to fight, to save Spain from the Reds. As for the Spanish church, on Franco's side, it fully supported his statement. Yet Richtofen's personal diary shows that the attack was planned out in advance, along with General Mola's chief of staff, Colonel Vigon. He agreed twice to the raid, the day before and on the morning of the attack. His diary goes on to say that the bombing was ordered to stop the Reds from retreating through Guernica. The truth was, this was a large-scale experiment by the Condor Legion. It just happened to line up, tactically, with the situation on the ground. The Basque retreat continued, but to give the majority of the troops and the nearby citizens more time to evacuate this area that was about to come under nationalist rule, several rearguard actions were implemented. The communist Rosa Luxemburg Battalion blocked the nationalists from entering what was left of Guernica for a while. On May 1st, the 8th UGT Battalion, made up of Union workers, sprang a trap on the Italian Black Arrows, forcing some 4,000 of them to retreat temporarily. Yet, these were nothing more than stopgap measures. The Basque forces in the area were putting their faith in the series of defensive works that encircled Bilbao, called the Iron Ring. This 80-kilometer perimeter ring was begun the previous winter. However, it did not have an in-depth defense system. It was just, in some places, a single line of trenches, and it was far from being complete. What's more, the man in charge of the ring, Major Gobi Kochia, had recently defected to the Nationalists, and his gift to them was its detailed plans. Recent nationalist photographs showed that many sections of the ring were not fortified or unmanned. So the four Italian Navarrese brigades, now each up to divisional strength, should not be hampered much by it. However, of more concern were the increased battalions of labor, Basque, and communist forces being organized in the north. Around this time, the government in Valencia 
on the east coast, tried twice to send fighters to the north. But as they were trying to send them through France, the Non-Intervention Committee put a stop to it, both times. The planes could not be flown directly there, as it would leave them with little fuel for maneuvers near the end of their flight should they run into German or Italian aircraft. This left the Basque region with only six Chateau fighters. By now Madrid had figured out what Franco and his fascist allies were up to in the north. The area could not be allowed to fall. So two offensives were planned, which would hopefully stop the nationalists from sending their men up there. The first would be a Republican advance to the northwest of Madrid. Three divisions would head further into the Sierra de Guadarrama, or Guadarrama Mountains, and make for the town of Segovia, about 25 miles or 40 kilometers northwest of the capital. If that town could be occupied, then perhaps the nationalists would worry enough about an active enemy in their rear and not push on further north. On May 31st, the three divisions moved out, but only after a bombardment of the nationalist defensive line in front of them. The defenders broke and ran, which allowed the Republicans to move forward. Well on their way to the Segovia Road, the nationalist general Valera then counterattacked on June 1st, with his division but more importantly, with overwhelming air support from the Condor Legion and the Italians. The Republicans had just captured the town of Cabeza Grande on their initial thrust, but lost it the next day. Yet the air attacks did not stop, and the militia had no way of countering them. The 14th International Brigade tried to stand up to the air assaults, but lost about 1,000 men for their bravery. As for their offensive, it was over, having barely begun. On June 6th, the Republicans were ordered to retreat and make for their starting point. In total, Madrid now had 3,000 fewer men than it did at the beginning of the attack. The after-action report clearly showed that the Republicans' measly air force in the area did little to affect the outcome. Part of the report read, Our own aircraft carried out bombing attacks from a great height and carelessly. Our fighters kept a respectable distance and rarely came down to machine gun the enemy. The enemy aircraft were highly active and extraordinarily effective. With the attempted siege at Segovia done, it was time to strike at the nationalist-held city of Huesca, which lies due northeast of Madrid, evenly between Zaragoza and the French border. This was also decided in May because by the end of that month, nationalist forces were on the eastern border of the Iron Ring around Bilbao. The Republican forces to the northeast of Madrid of the Aragon Front were augmented with the 12th International Brigade and four brigades from the Central Front and reorganized under General Lukacs. The militia and international soldiers moved out, easily outnumbering their waiting foes. Yet the attackers had little in the way of large guns or armor. 
As for the Nationalists, they were well entrenched and had several machine gun emplacements. When these two factors were added together, and then put with the Republicans attacking over an open field, the outcome was obvious and took very little time. Reminiscent of the Great War, on June 12th, thousands of Republican soldiers fell within minutes. By the end, some 9,000 would lie dead. To make matters worse for the Republican cause, an artillery shell landed near enough General Lukacs to end his life. On June 16th, the Republicans, still desperate to alter the attention of Franco to the northeast, away from the north, then made for the villages of nearby Alere and Camillas. But again, the well-placed nationalists held them back. On June 19th, the offensive was called off. Madrid's attempts to distract Franco from the north had failed, and the Republicans had lost many thousands of men along the way. During the night of June 18th, just before the Republican offensive to the northeast was stopped, the last of the Basque troops had evacuated the city of Bilbao. The civilians, those who had chose to leave, had already left. To be sure, the bridges leading to Bilbao were destroyed, but the city itself was intact and lay prostrate before its new approaching masters. Hello, and thank you for being a member of the History of World War II podcast, Episode 111, Desperate Countermeasures. Last time, with General Franco determined to come at the North, the Republicans sought to distract him by attacking nationalist holdouts to the Northwest and Northeast of the capital. Yet both adventures had failed. But even then, with both Durango and Guernica now in nationalist hands, by late May, Franco's troops had moved in and were just east of Bilbao, the Basque capital. Yet the last part of their journey had not been easy. The Basques, with their various allies, had recently started resisting on a whole new level. After all, their homes and villages were being lost or destroyed outright. Also, the attacking allies had less air support than as before. For one, the German air units were fighting to the south, and two, whenever an Italian plane flew over, the Basques contemptuously opened up with every bit of small arms fire they had. Strangely, this was more effective than might be thought. Roughly one-third of Italian planes lost were due to lucky hits from handheld guns. As such, the Italian pilots stayed higher when dropping bombs, thus increasing their inaccuracy. Still, by early June, Franco's men were within sight of the eastern side of Bilbao's so-called Iron Ring. During all this, the Basque leader, Aguirre, had tried to breathe fire into his armed forces. Llano de la Encomienda was replaced by General Gamir Ulibari, as well as some of the officers below him, yet the result was negligible. 
Adding to this, but in favor of the nationalists in a strange way, was the death of the conservative General Mola. He died in a plane crash on June 3rd. And even though Franco's other former rival, San Giorgio, had died the same way early just as the attempted coup got underway, nothing suspicious seemed to have happened to Mola's plane. Now, in charge of the North for the fascists was General Fidel Davila, who was also, at times, slow to act. But unlike Mola, he did not rethink a move once it was decided. This made operations run much smoother for the nationalists. First thing, Davila got an updated air reconnaissance of the Iron Ring, located its weak points in the east, and ordered an assault to begin on June 12th. This would have taken Mola at least a month. On June 12th, 150 nationalist guns opened up on the eastern side of the ring, followed up by several air attacks. Only then did Colonel Valino's 1st Navarrese Brigade and Colonel Juan Sanchez's 5th Brigade move forward. When the attackers got to the ring, it was just a matter of getting over bare earthworks. However, the Basques did not stand there and die in glory. Instead, they moved back, but kept firing. They were losing, to be sure, and losing handily, but the invaders were not able to come on at a pace they would have chosen. But before the Nationalist artillery had started its bombardment, the Basque government had already been in secret talks with the Italians and the Vatican, trying to stop the destruction of Bilbao. Occupation and defeat were one thing, but going the way of Guernica appealed to none of the defenders. Back on May 6th, Pope Pius XI chose a cardinal to mediate between the two sides. Cardinal Goma visited Mola and received his word that if Bilbao surrendered, then there would be no wide-scale destruction or murder. Word of this proposal was sent to the Basque leader, Aguirre, on May 12th. Yet somehow the message ended up in Valencia, to the east. There was already a significant amount of distrust between Basque and Valencia, as in, would the North make a separate peace? And this only deepened it. Either way, it seemed an agreement would not be reached. So on June 16th, as Franco's men and allies came from the east, the Basque government decided to evacuate Bilbao. It was a painful decision by a proud, tough people, but nothing or no one could stop what was coming. The voters had also decided to blow the bridges to slow down the invaders. However, they left the steelworks there intact. If these were destroyed during their retreat, everyone knew that Franco would seek a bloody vengeance. When the government in Valencia heard about this, they realized what was about to befall them. The nationalists, with their fascist allies, with a now even larger war industry platform. With the decision made, the coast road to the west was full of civilians, government officials, and soldiers. As for this last group, many of them were the soldiers of Santander. They were heading home knowing that the fight would soon 
be on their doorstep. Yet of all these people along the road, they suffered equally as squadrons of Heinkel fighters dove down and strafed them. With half of the civilian population, most of the government, and most of the soldiers retreating west, a small officer corps, along with the Minister of Justice, stayed behind to defend the city and hopefully slow down the Italians and the Nationalists. June 17th was a day of waiting for those that remained behind. Now that the Iron Ring was breached, those left in charge placed their troops on the left or west side of the river Nervion, which itself runs just east of the city. As the Nationalists came closer, some 5th Element locals started cheering. A unit of still-loyal anarchists let their anger momentarily overwhelm their fear, and they dealt with the betrayers brutally. The anarchists then set fire to the local church before leaving, as its priest was also hoping for a nationalist victory. Those Republican troops who had dared to stay this long, hoping to give the invaders a hot reception before themselves heading west, were under a constant artillery barrage throughout June 18th. But then a new threat came from the South. For some reason, those Basque and Republican troops stationed below the city, being led by an Italian communist named Nino Nanetti, had failed to blow the bridges before retreating. As such, other fifth columnists were easily making their way into the city. By the evening of June 18th, the last of the defenders started down the coast road to the west. The locals who had decided for Franco would also have their own surprise. Just before a Basque tank vacated, it turned its guns on those waving nationalist flags and opened fire. In this battle, everything was personal, not to be forgotten or forgiven. And that was it for the defense of Bilbao. At 5 p.m. on June 19th, the lead element of the 5th Navarrese Brigade, under the command of Colonel Juan Sanchez, entered the city. Both sides had lost tens of thousands of men at this point in the north, and yet the militia made up most of their casualties, as the Basque troops did not engage in open frontal assaults. Also, nearly a third of the Republican casualties were dealt out by the Condor Legion and Italian pilots. Of course, now that Franco's men had Bilbao, summary court-martials were held. Thousands were found guilty, but most were sent to prisons, as opposed to being shot outright. The effects of Guernica were still strong, and the world was united in condemning Franco. Still, Basque nationalism was strongly suppressed. The Basque flag was now illegal, as was the language. It would be a long time before the people of the Spanish North could proudly declare their heritage, and they would never forget who the enemy was. Those troops that retreated towards Santander knew their situation was equally hopeless. It was just a question of when Santander and then further east, around Oviedo, Asturias, would be occupied. And Mola's replacement, General Davila, 
got to work. Gathering six Carlos brigades under General Solchaca, Bergonzoli's Littorio Division, another Italian division called the March 23rd, the Black Flames and the Mixed Black Arrows, all now under the command of General Bastico, which had some 200 planes of Germans and Italians. This assault force would be ordered to push on ever westward. Even better, the Nationalist pilots were given the Condor Legion's Heinkel 51s as their new Messerschmitts began to arrive in larger numbers. Facing this mass of men and steel would be the politically neutral General Gamir Ulibari. Ulibari had already been bloodied, fighting in Valencia, but now he was ordered to the north to do the impossible. The Basques now only had some 40 operational but older fighters and bombers. But before this latest offensive could be started in the north, a third Republican offensive, with a view to distracting Franco, had to be settled. On July 6th, 24 kilometers, or 15 miles, west of Madrid, General Miaja launched another assault. His goal was to push his boundary line there, which ran west to east, as far south as possible. The further his troops could push down, the better the chance was of the nationalist forces just west of the capital of being cut off from their supply lines. If the Republicans could reach Brunette, then Franco would find himself practically having to start over in central Spain. Just as the Germans had encouraged Franco to focus on the north, the communists had suggested that Miaja's military hit the nationalist to the west of the capital. Fewer supplies were getting through from the communists as the nationalist blockade was getting stronger. A show of strength was needed by Madrid to show France that the official government of Spain was still in the fight and should be supported. Unlike other Republican offensives, this attack was well planned out. What Soviet supplies had recently come in were not spread out, but instead sent intact for this offensive. Nine new brigades were set up and equipped, and most of these had heavy machine gun units added on. Also, as the area the Republicans would be charging across had some hills, but was mostly flat, new Soviet tanks would be used and fully worked into the tactics. The Republicans even took the time to reconnaissance the area and chose well for their attack point. The Nationalist line below them, to the Republican south, was not continuous, but really just a series of outposts. It was a part of the Nationalist Army of the Center, under General Andreas Zumeta. Yet, once again, once battle was underway and the Republicans started to surge south, General Valera would be ordered to take over. Miaja's attack started really late on July 5th with an artillery barrage while his men crawled closer to the enemy on their stomachs. When the sun rose on the 6th, the Republican guns opened up in earnest on the already weakened Nationalist line. The local Nationalist headquarters at Naval Canero was also targeted. When the guns stopped, the Republican 11th Division, commanded by General Lister, 
having already gotten into position, got up and charged forward. The going was surprisingly, relatively easy, and soon by late morning the 11th had surrounded Brunette. The attackers had achieved their goal almost in just a matter of hours. Lister then told his men to enter into the city. Again, resistance was weak, and Brunette was taken by noon. Franco put General Valera in charge and told him to re-establish the line. Valera, wasting no time, gathered every body he could lay his hands on and ordered them to proceed to this new front. Within 12 hours, the 12th, 13th, and 150th Divisions were en route. So, too, was the Condor Legion. Though his men were tired, Lister kept them going. Traveling south of Brunette, the Republican advance continued. But by the afternoon of July 6th, the 34th and 46th Divisions on either side of Lister's men were stopped from going any further, as Nationalist reinforcements arrived or had prepared better defenses. The Republican attack had come to a halt. But Lister wasn't quite ready to give up just yet. Another Republican force was sent to push due west of Lister's current position. And although reinforced with tanks and large guns, the Nationalists were holding steady there. The very success of Lister's advance confused the Republicans. The follow-up should have been quicker and more robust. But as many did not think the enterprise would succeed in the first place, plans were not implemented in a timely manner. As such, nationalists held villages to the left and right of Lister's gain stayed under their control throughout July 7th. For some inexplicable reason, Lister's men spent July 7th clearing up pockets of resistance behind them instead of containing them and moving on, to keep the pressure on the Nationalists. This allowed the air power of Franco, currently in the north, to come down and engage in the fight, which it did late that afternoon. As the Republicans' larger goals were to not only take pressure off of the north, but also to give relief to Madrid, General Miaha used his reserve of the 18th Army Corps and attacked eastward towards the capital. Elements of the 18th Corps approached the Guadarrama River, normally a stumbling block, yet the men, sensing victory, pushed across it on the morning of July 8th. Now those Republicans ran into the Nationalist 12th Division. The two sides would continuously engage each other for the next two days. With the advance to the west and east now stalled, Lister sought to go further south. But on his right flank, the nationalist position of Quijorna held on. It had been one of the two flanks of Lister's original attack that had held him up after his initial gains. But then the 35th Division was ordered up and told to assist Lister. Together, Lister's and the 35th attacked the nationalists at Quijorna, and though losing thousands of their men, finally pushed out the defenders on the morning of July 9th. But even as this success unfolded, the now left flank of Lister ran into serious resistance. Those Republican troops trying to attack 
were supported by tanks and artillery, but the air force of the Spanish and the Germans and the Italians dominated the scene. Every time the Republicans pushed, bombs would rain down and kill many more of them than were being suffered by the Nationalists. What few Republican planes there were, operating in the area, were no match for the Italians and Spanish, most certainly not for the new Messerschmitts. With the Republicans still trying to push eastward towards the capital, their efforts finally paid off as Villanueva del Padillo was captured by the 12th International Brigade of the 69th Division. Villanueva del Padillo is about five miles northeast of Brunete, so this was real progress, and the siege close to Madrid seemed about to be lifted. About two miles southeast of Villanueva del Padillo, Enciso's 10th Division, along with Kleber's 45th Division, was on the verge of surrounding the town of Villafranca del Castillo. As this was closer to the capital, the Republicans really began to get their hopes up. Republican Colonel Gerardo planned to finish taking the town on July 11th, but then became ill. A Colonel Casado took Gerardo's place, but being made of different stuff, Casado reported on the low morale of the troops, which seemed strange for a force about to capture an objective. Casado then followed up his report with canceling the oncoming attack. However, General Miaha, when he heard of this, screamed in protest and ordered the assault forward anyways. The delay caused by Gerardo's illness, Casado's taking over, report, and then cancellation, and then Miaha's reversal of Casado's cancellation, allowed General Valera to send up the 5th Brigade of the Navarrese Division. This brigade, comprised of professional troops, was able to come in and begin a general pushback on the Republicans. Villafranca del Castillo was saved. The Spanish militia pushed back. Then the Guadarrama River was crossed. The Republicans were now retreating pell-mell. However, the now defenders reorganized their lines and entrenched themselves in front of Villa Nueva del Padillo on July 11th. General Miaja tried to revive the offensive, but as the Nationalists and their allies completely controlled the air, this was not possible. On July 15th, Miaja called off the attacks. When the 5th Navarre Brigade led the Nationalist counterattack in the east, the Republicans lost a fair amount of captured land. Now Miaha knew it was only a matter of when the Nationalists would push up from the south. But as for the civilians, those in Madrid rejoiced that Franco's attention was back on central Spain. But the general's plans for the north would not change, just be delayed. Also, Madrid was still threatened from the west. Little had actually changed. And for all of this, the Republicans had bled themselves. Many brigades had lost about half of their men, some even more. Meanwhile, General Valera was indeed planning his counterstrike. Although he would attempt to recapture lost territory in a three-pronged attack, the main strike would come from the West, where the Nationalists 
were the strongest, consisting of 20,000 men. Their main target would be Quijona, still in Republican hands. Again, see the map used as the episode cover. Coming opposite of this attack from the east would be 10,000 nationalist troops. Not enough on their own to retake territory, but when added to what Valera already had in the area, they would serve well enough. And finally, coming up from the south would be the nationalist smallest advance of some 8,000 men. Really, their job was to contain, while the other two forces closed in and crushed all between them. General Valera's attack came on July 18th. The morning shook with artillery barrages, while nationalist aircraft bombed various positions. But for all this, little territory changed hands that day. To the west, the attackers were able to occupy several hills northwest of Quijona. But that was it. To the east, but still west of Madrid, the Republicans had just lost more land on the eastern side of the Guadarma River. To be sure, the Republicans resisted mightily that day. In fact, even before the sun went down, several counterattacks by the Republicans were launched. Yet, they couldn't retake what had just been lost. But the Nationalists and the world was put on notice. Professionalism was working its way into the Republican militia and international brigades. Overhead, the Nationalists still dominated the skies, but the Republicans made them work for it. Though obsolete, Madrid threw up every plane capable of taking off. At one point on July 18th, some 80 Nationalist planes found themselves engaged with 60 slower but truculent Republican aircraft. The Nationalist offensive was renewed on July 19th, but again, little territory exchanged hands, as the Republicans gave as good as they got. Many realized that a Franco victory here could spell the doom of the capital, so fought accordingly. The next day, July 20th, Valera focused more of his guns and aircraft to the east, the result being that more land was captured from that direction. Still, the expected quick nationalist victory was taking its sweet time. But now, General Miaha struck back. Sending in reinforcements, the Republicans counterattacked along the Guadarrama River. This led to several days of back-and-forth fighting in the intense heat. The Republicans in the west, near Quijorna, were unable to push back on the Nationalist forces there. However, they held their own, allowing the contest in the east to play out unaffected. Back at the river, the two sides went back and forth, with men falling from the heat as much as from bullets. Yet on July 23rd, with the help of Nationalist air power, Franco's men and his allies pushed back across the Guadarrama River and established a firm beachhead. By July 24th, the Nationalist forces to the east were exhausted, but victorious. Now it was time for Valera's southern force to advance. Supporting those men were 65 artillery batteries. Opposing those guns were only 22 batteries of the Republicans. The Nationalists came on. Miaha tried to stop their advance with several tanks, 
but the enemy's guns made short work of them. The Nationalists pushed on and entered Brunette by the afternoon. This forced Lister's 11th Division to fall back to the northern edge of the city. Miaha tried to help by sending Lister the 14th Division, led by Cipriano Mera. Mera's men counterattacked on July 25th to the south, but the Nationalists could not be pushed back. With this failure, Lister and his 11th were forced out of Brunette by a few miles. Miaha would allow his men to rest for a few days, but then ordered several small counterattacks to see if any momentum could be ignited. But nothing broke his way. General Valera wanted to restart his own offensive, for surely the Republicans were exhausted. But Franco told him no. It was time to go after Santander in the north. Greetings, everyone, from Central Virginia. So these are the episodes for August. Finally caught up. Sorry about that. Uh, Back to normal here. I'm now working on the next regular episode of the war in Asia to try to hurry up and get through the Sino-Japanese war so we can get up to Pearl Harbor and then go on from there and obviously pick up the Stalin bio and um, and anything else I can think of. So uh, thank you for your patience. I really do appreciate it. Back on a normal schedule and um, hope to stay that way. So as always, take care, everyone.